0: Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 6, 9. It's kind of a long reading. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares, and many words mark the speech of a fool. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin, and do not protest to the temple messenger, My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. If you see the poor oppressed in a district, injustice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them, both or others are higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners or wealth lost through some misfortune so that when they have children there's nothing left for them to inherit everyone comes naked from their mother's womb and as everyone comes so they depart they take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands this too is a grievous evil as everyone comes so they depart and what they do they gain since they and what do they gain since they toil for the wind All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. This is what I observe to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toil, toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. I have seen another evil under the sun and it weighs heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth, possessions and honor so that they lack nothing, their heart's desire. But God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them and strangers enjoy them instead. This is, this is meaningless, a grievous evil. A man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning. It departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man. Even if he lives a thousand years, twice over, but fails to enjoy his prosperity, Do not all go to the same place? Everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied. What advantage have the wise over fools? What do the poor gain by knowing how to conduct themselves before others? Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind.
1: The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The kids are invited to Kids Church with Emily today. This, too, is meaningless, chasing after the wind. We find ourselves in the odd book of Ecclesiastes this summer as we've tried to, to sort of journey through the books that make up the wisdom literature, the, the literature on how we might live, how we might gain um, skillful and artful living um, in, in the Bible. Last summer, we talked about the book of Proverbs, and the book of Proverbs is... Uh, compared to Ecclesiastes, to say it's much more practical is uh, an understatement in the ways that it, it calls us into living with the material which God has placed in us. And that's, that's what I think is interesting. That we talked about the two vocab words last week that sort of— uh, I realized that as I said that now that I just I felt triggered. I think it was back to like eighth grade where vocab words were tests and bad. Um, but anyways— uh, uh, I could never pass a spelling test for my life. This is, um, uh, so vocab words like that. Anyway, so the first vocab word is this notion of, of smoke and vapor and sort of trying to grab this thing. And, and I think what we, when we talk about the materiality of Proverbs, that there was tangibility to the world, what happens in Ecclesiastes is all that was material there becomes smoke, becomes vapor, becomes hard to grasp. And then, how do we hear this voice? The, the second word um, is, is, as I'll refer to the author of Ecclesiastes as Kohelet. This is throughout the sermon. So, when I say Kohelet, I'm talking about the author of Ecclesiastes, and this is what he identifies himself as at the beginning of the book. I, Kohelet, will speak. Um, and so you can fill in Solomon if that makes more sense. You can put in the teacher or the congregant or whatever else you want, but I'll use the word Kohelet for the author. But part of the problem, I think, as we move through these things is, is how do we hold this together? And I don't think so much intention. The word we've been using is sort of counter-testimony, the, the this sort of way in which Proverbs proclaim the world as it is. And, and it takes somebody to come along and to say, but what about when it isn't that way? Um, almost as an exception, more than as a new normative stance. Gohelet, I think, in the end, doesn't prove a whole lot, but observes and looks through all that he can see throughout the land and under the sun, and then comes up to these places. But he, he doesn't quite have the, the proof that, say, the author of Ecclesiastes does. He has this way of sort of moving um, in that way. As, as I was thinking about it this week, um, this line from um, postmodern philosopher uh, Giles Deluze—he he wrote uh, a book. Uh, what is philosophy? Was the title of this book? And I can tell you, I was no clear on what was philosophy when I read the book. Um, but, anyways, this this analogy reminds me of what Kohelet is doing for us. People are constantly putting up an umbrella that shelters them in a firmament of conventions and opinions. But poets make a slit in the umbrella, they tore open the firmament itself to, a little bit of, to let a little bit of free and windy chaos and to frame in the sunlight a vision that appears through the tear. But when the crowds of entertainers, uh, imitators come and repair the umbrella with something vaguely remembering the miz- vision and the crowd of commentators who patch over the tear with opinions. Thus, artists are always needed to make other slits, to carry out necessary and perhaps even greater destructions, thereby restoring to their predecessors the incommunable novelty of what they could no longer see. Now, what I would take away from this is is why I like this quote is because what happens, and you could imagine um, setting up an umbrella, and the way I read when I first read this, I thought of the umbrellas that we set up in our lives and then we draw in the sand how we make sense of the world. And so you set up a tarp, an umbrella, something, uh, you go out to the beach, and then you get down on your knees, and then you draw a schematic, a design, a way in which you think the world is going to work. And as long as the umbrella holds, we can live in that sort of way of sort of permanent trust and belief that these are the things that always will work out. And what Deleuze, and I, I took this a different way um, uh, when I found myself uh, diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, but, but what, what Deleuze's argument is that then poets come, artists come, and they tear open that firmament, that, that umbrella, that thing, so that what is real can then be revealed. The world that we set up under these false shelters, can seem secure, but what he would argue is it's just a microcosm of a fake world that you've created. And so for me at that moment in time where I was uh, 30 um, and I received that news, for me it was this understanding of all of these fake deals, schematics in the way that I thought my life in the world was going to work. It took a diagnosis, a, rep- a report, and this is, um, I use this as a personal example because I think you can find yourself in it, It took something from the outside to cause a little tear in what you thought was always going to be even. And then you find yourself standing in the world. And I think what Deleuze is is pointing, Deleuze is not a Christian, but I think what he's pointing to the challenges is is that we always just repair, so people come alongside of you and say, you know, well, one, it's not that bad. Two, maybe there's God's purpose in this. Three, um, maybe this is part of some greater plan, this, that, and the other. And what happens is commentators come and help you repair what's torn in the umbrella so that you can go, fix your design in the sand, and then try to make it work again. This is a long way of saying, I think Kohelet is the ultimate tear in everybody's umbrella. His, his sort of... Um, way of coming as testimony is to say that you're just protecting yourselves with all these ways you think this adds up from the storms of the world. But this is not uh, this is a neat point to write up that uh, tidy up that quote I guess to some degrees although it's it's not so neat is that what happens is is that we find Christ in that place. If you want to think if the umbrella's completely blown away. That which you have remaining in your hand, that which holds the umbrella, is uh, the cross. It is Christ who can stand in the ultimate chaos of the world and reveal that this too is necessary. And what happens is Christ does not repair our umbrellas, but brings about a resurrection, a new creation, and a new life. And so as Kohelet is doing this for us to point that these are the limits of life under the sun. These are the ways in which dysfunction rails. These are the ways in which all of your ways of making sense of it might not be true. What Christ does to do that is not repair our umbrellas, but weathers the ultimate crisis, um, the pain, the alienation of living in that storm. Um, And I think... That, that is the revelation we get. Now, I think the important thing to remember is we're not Jesus. Um, we aren't capable of living in that space, except to the extent to which we might cling to the cross. Um, where I think Deleuze has a point here is perhaps it's for us to remind ourselves time and time again to have other people come and make other slits in the umbrella, because it's to live in the chaos— to live in the ultimate disorder is to not live at all. Kohelet, at the end, is going to say, uh, even in today's passage, uh, it, where he has sort of one of those carpe diem, accept the gift, seize the day passages again, uh, he sort of says that, you know, these people who can enjoy their work, their drink, and their pleasure are capable of forgetting about everything else. Um, and so there's a, um, a robust sort of way in which we sort of enjoy the moment, because it's, it's living um, in a way that can bring us these gifts, that uh, bring in us in time. And so we, um, I don't think Christ intended us to completely live in the chaos. This is why the message of Ecclesiastes is so hard. At the end of the book, um, the author, uh, the compiler, says that uh, this book is like a goad that sort of prods us along. And so I looked up what a goad looks like. I said it's like a pointy spear that keeps the animal moving. Well, this was the first hit in... Um, I was like, that does not look like fun. Um, but I also realized that, that is what the book of Ecclesiastes feels like. Um, it does feel like this pointy goad to keep us moving along the road. It, and, and we talked about this at Bible Study this week. And uh, I don't repeat myself enough in my sermons, or maybe some of you who are all the time think I do, but, but people come sparingly, is that there's an intro to Ecclesiastes, and then there's a frame exit to the book provided by somebody speaking to their son, and he kind of says it's important that we listen to the teacher, to Kohelet, and he's right about many things, and it's like a goad for us, but he doesn't leave the story there. He adds something, and so Ecclesiastes, within the, without that ending, perhaps doesn't make the Bible. It makes the Bible because of the way it's framed at the end, that this is a pointy goad for us to keep us aware, to tear perhaps the, the holes in the canopies and umbrellas we set up in our lives, to sort of reveal that. Now, one of the things that I've been thinking about as I've been thinking about a goad is from my understanding, not uh, a farmer or a rancher, the goad would be used by the shepherd to help the sheep, the animals move along. It's important for Christians, as we hear that this passage is like a goad for us, is to keep in mind that Christ resembles himself as the Good Shepherd. How is it Christ might be using the poke of Ecclesiastes to guide us in life? And as, and as sort of the Father sort of leaves open, it's not the whole truth either. But it is a pointy stick to get us moving along the way of life, to keep us going, to sort of cut holes in the world and the illusions we think we can create to sort of make it through life. Um, It's a long way of, of intro for today's sermon. Today's text is organized a little bit differently in that it has worship and then a section about wealth and then one of those sort of like, who seizes the day passages, accept the gift, um, Carpe diem, um, that this is the way, um, and then he ends with sort of another reflection on wealth. That's the structure from five one to uh, six, nine. And then what happens in six and seven is what's, what what Kohelet has been looking at in the book so far is um, what profit is there in life like? How do we end up in the positive ledger of life? How do we, how do we gain in life? And his answer always seems to be, um, take that moment in the sunshine, take that time with your family, enjoy that meal and that drink, take in that simple pleasure, look at the toil that you've done that God's giving you in a good way, and rest in that. It's the first half of the book, is sort of him saying how do we gain profit and he keeps pointing out it, it, keeping score doesn't work <laughs> uh, keeping score trying to make it even up in your way is not the way that this is going to work out what he takes up in the second half of the book which is going to frustrate some of what we learned in the first half is what then is good what then is good um, but we'll get to that next week um, but this uh, is sort of where we find ourselves today. Um, I'm trying to think if I have... I think, yeah, that, that one of the things that's important for us to remember, too, is that um, as a whole, this first half of Ecclesiastes and um, the, the bulk of the book frees us from sentimentality. This is perhaps where we enter in this portion about worship, is that it frees us from a cheap relationship to the divine it frees us from these simple ways now this passage this first couple verses about worship are interesting because we uh rachel read for us from matthew where jesus says you know you can't make vows to win with the divine um and then he he says later that that your prayers you babble on and on but keep them simple We've been trying to talk about how Jesus and Kohelet might speak together, and perhaps here they're on the same point. Is, is you know, first off, you you can't win with God through your own mechanisms. You can't draw your own deals. You can't schematically design your own way in the world. You can't keep a ledger and end up in the positive in that way, um, because what happens is um, life, life happens. Um, and things get frustrated in that. And then with prayer, too, he reminds us that that we're not negotiating with God. We're not babbling up with God. God knows us intimately. Now, that's different than perhaps what Kohelet would say. Kohelet is, God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. Now, does anybody remember the Phillips, Craig, and Dean song? I had to look it up. You're God in heaven. I am a, I'm a Jesus. I am so in love with you. This, it was like a 90s youth group song, so many of you may not remember that, but, but that always stuck with me as, as a helpful way to look at life, that you are God in heaven, and here I am on earth, so I'll let my words be few. Now, I did not know that that came from the book of Ecclesiastes in quite a dark segment of life, uh, of teaching, but it always made sense to me that, that there was this infinite God, and there was us, and God is in heaven, and we are here on earth. And so perhaps it is for us to make our words be few. The, the end of that chorus and that song is, Jesus, I am so in love with you, um, which has a temptation to sound sentimental. Tolstoy sells the story of, of monks that were living on an island, three of them. Um, and this bishop shows up, and he finds out that these three monks don't know the Lord's Prayer And so he's like, I will instruct them. And so he spends a month, I forget how long it is in the story, instructing them in the Lord's Prayer. And he's getting ready to leave, and they say, oh, uh, we loved having you here. It was great to know you. To be honest, we're not going to get that prayer down. It's just too hard for us, Um, which makes me wonder about the intellect of these monks. But needless to say, he says, well, what are you praying? And they say, oh, we pray, God, you're three, and there's three of us, have mercy on us. And, and the bishop was impressed with the simplicity of their prayer. We're three, you're three. Have mercy upon us. You are God in heaven, and here we are on earth. So we'll let our words be few. Now this teaching, um, I'll walk through it real fast, is that uh, guard your steps when you do go to the house of the Lord. Go near to listen, rather than to offer sacrifices, the sacrifice of fools who do not know uh, that they do wrong. This idea of going to listen to God, I think, is important. Um, one that we often skip through in our world. Now, Rachel read t- for us again, too, from Psalm 40, um, which, which talks about the opening of the ears. In different parts of Scripture, um, when the Israelites are hard of hearing for God, God digs out their ears so they can hear again. Um, that when we go to worship, when we go to the temple of the Lord, um, perhaps it's better for us to, to think that something might be spoken to us, that we might hear something of what God is doing, more than to think we bring something to it. Um, the reason I laughed when I said that, because God is God. What could we bring to God? But to have receptivity, to have the ability to listen, that might be what it is. I, I took a prayer class in seminary, which seems like a duh statement. Um, like, ugh. You would think that'd be part of seminary. Uh, but anyways, one of the questions on the test at the end, which the teacher said it throughout the class, is what percentage of prayer is listening? And she always contended 90% of prayer is listening which gave me a different way of thinking about prayer. So often I would go to prayer and concerns and this and deals and and sort of asking for God with help and things. And funny enough, with vows at the end, I think one of my earliest examples of prayer in my life was when I couldn't find something and I would vow to God in my immaturity that like, if God helped me find the thing, I would give up something that I knew frustrated God for some reason. Um, uh, This is that type of dealing that I think is innate to humans, or maybe I was just a really immature 12-year-old, but um, I think it's innate to us, and we get more mature with it, right? I don't speak out that prayer anymore when I can't find my car key, but I have other ways of sort of negotiating with God, and that, that I'll do these things performatively based on what he does, and, and he continues on about these sacrifices, do not be quick with your mouth, do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God, and the teaching we've been talking about god is god in heaven and you are on earth so let your words be few a dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool this is a, a mirroring statement a dream comes in in the old testament and this dream is like vapor it's trying to grasp something and and it creates many cares then Many words mark the speech of a fool that creates the same thing. When you make a vow to God, do not uh, delay to fill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better to make a vow than to. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Which is a good instruction there. Do not let your mouth lead you to sin, and do not present to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry? at what you say and destroy the work of your hands. Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. Um, Simple sort of teaching there is it's better not to negotiate with God. And if you do and don't perform, the work of your hands might be destroyed. This is Kohelet's imagination here. But then he he brightly places then at the end of this, therefore fear God idea. This is the root of wisdom. The, The fear of the Lord is is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, It has a different tone in Proverbs than it does in Ecclesiastes, but I think the tone always is that fear is one of the things that displaces the self. Fear is one of the things that displaces us, the I, from the center of life. And when fear is displaced from the center, that is where wisdom and God's instruction might be able to enter. And so he's calling forth that way in which we can sort of um, be pressed into that, um, uh, that we might find that. The next section concerns the oppressed again. If you see the poor poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things, for one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are higher than others still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king profits from the fields this next teaching here again he brought up oppression in the last section and there might be a mirroring going on there but kohelet is not that upset about oppression which is shocking to us but he sees and i i think he's not wrong about this that this is the nature of life that that humans oppress one another don't be surprised by such things and then um, he makes what I think is an interesting political point, which is they're just trying to, the people doing this are just trying to climb further and further up the chain um, uh, to get higher and higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. This is, this is a point in which he is um, proclaiming that that the common good, the land which is owned by God in Israel's imagination, is one that should profit all, and the kings that are good Bring that to all the people. Um, And this is the challenge of that. Um, We said more about oppression last week in Kohelet, but I think I'll leave it now for today. Um, The next section, he goes back to wealth. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. Here he's talking about the, what we see, I think, very true in our lives is that when people get more, they keep trying to get more and more and more. If you have the pleasure of talking to anybody who builds houses in Aspen, um, you can see a lot of this there and that like they had 3,000 feet and we're making it 5,000 feet. and then you say, how many people do that live there and they say two, two months out of the year. Um, that they're never happy with what they have, but they keep, building and craving more, but this also happens on the smaller end of things. We, we pick on the uber wealthy, but you see it in the smaller ending things in which we try to gain more and more and just increase increase. As goods increase, so do those who consume them, and what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? That they gain so much, all they can do is just look at it. They can't consume it. They can't share it. They just look at it. Cullard then proposes that the sleep of the laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance presents them no sleep. Here he's talking about how um, people who work can go to sleep either tired or hungry, but they sleep because of it. But those who are guarding their wealth, who lived with their hands closed, the sort of clench-fist mentality, don't sleep well because they're always thinking about protecting it or gaining more. Um, and again, well, just by, I mean, world stats, we're rich. Um, we live with the disease that somebody coined as affluenza, um, that we keep trying to gain more influence. So uh, I think it's a word for us, and that when we lose sleep, trying to gain our riches, trying to make it. I've seen grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, which is an interesting. You know, wealth hoarded to the harms of its earners, we would have the opposite perspective. Wealth uh, hoarded to the harms of others. Um, or wealth lost through some misfortune. So then they have children, there's nothing left for them to inherit. Uh, we've seen these things, too, in life. And so then he turns. Everyone comes naked from their mothers' womb, and everyone go, uh, comes so they depart. Take nothing from their toil that they carry in their hands. This, too, is a grievous evil. Kohelet, and we'll talk about this in the end, looks at the way in which life leaves to emptiness and death, is severely frustrated by that. This is a grievous evil to him. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain, since they toil for the win? And all their days in their lives, they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. This image of that these people with wealth and trying to gain riches, living closed fist lives, they eat in darkness. Which is both one way of saying they never make it to sit at the table. They're never able to view and have the gifts that God has given them be as gifts, but that which they earned rightfully, that they control, that they have. All the days of their lives they eat as if there is no light, which makes the next passage stand out all the more. This is what I observe to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, to find satisfaction in their Tolstoy labor while under the sun during the few days of life God has given them. For this is their lot. More, however, when God once gives give someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, and this is the, the interesting key here, God gives the ability to enjoy his gifts, to accept their lot and be happy in the toil. This is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. The rich, the fool, the other people are able to keep um, occupied with other things, namely, what does the future entail? How will I grow my wealth? How will my deals work? What he says of these people who receive it as a gift of God, they are capable of being occupied with the gladness of their heart. And when we talked a couple Sundays ago about uh, one of these passages, we talked about how peace takes time. To sit and enjoy a meal takes time. Jewish people uh, who have a, a, a ritual Sabbath or Orthodox Jewish people, they talk about how they live three days in preparation for the Sabbath so that they can properly rest in that day. And then they have three days on the other side in which they bask in the the glow of that rest, in which they move into that space. They find a way through that cycle of three days, three days, to be occupied with gladness of heart. But I love that, that it takes three days to prepare to have that rest. We think rest will just come magically to us if we just set down. But they, they create this space so that they can sit in that time which God has ordered on that seventh day of the week to, to have that rest. It's always, you know, the first person who gets up after the meal to, to do the dishes that ruins the meal. Um, that's not always true. But, but, you know, this idea of like, well, it's over. Let's get up and move on to the next thing. Uh, but to sit in that goodness be occupied with the gladness of our hearts um, at defiance church and it's incidentally a lot of in this first half the places of joy happen around the table at defiance church one of our sort of five marks is the table how is it we can take our tables and turn them to places where we are occupied with the gladness of heart that god has for us but then kohelet continues i have seen another evil in the sun and it weighs heavily on mankind God gives some people wealth and possessions and honor, and they lack nothing their heart desires. But God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them. And strangers enjoy them and said, This too is meaningless, a grievous evil. The gift of being able to sit and enjoy is a gift from God. So often, and this is perhaps what exists at Jesus' time when they ask you know, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, is a good question because the rich seem to have everything, right? Things are going well for them. So if they can't enter heaven, how can we enter heaven? Missing the point of the book of Ecclesiastes, which to be honest, I haven't read it that much either. Um, so <laughs> shame on me. But point being is, is that they look at the wealth and positions of honor and stuff and they go, oh, that must be how you get in. But what what Kohelet sees here is that, that God has to grant them the ability to enjoy that. And that strangers or an interloper comes and enjoys them instead. This has multiple different meanings. It could be um, taken advantage of or somebody who sort of gains it after the person dies. But he sees how these people who can gain can't get enjoyment. It's not, It shouldn't be lost on us that Ours is one of the more neurotic countries on the face of the earth. As we've gained in wealth and position and honor, we have more and more drugs to deal with all the things that come with not being able to enjoy life. We exist in an anxious age. We exist in an age of, of sort of um, default... Uh, uh, quest for more we have all these things in which we are medicated and, and you know like the pandemic for us was a, a huge boom in alcoholism for people like that we have all these ways in which we can't enjoy what god has given us big houses to be locked inside during a pandemic and the only thing we can d- think to do is to drink ourselves into numbness um this too is meaningless a grievous evil and so he ends, a man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, he cannot enjoy his prosperity, and he does not receive proper burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off uh, than he. It comes without meaning. It departs in darkness, and in darkness it's named shroud. That's a harsh teaching. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more uh, rest than does the man, even if a thousand years twice over fails to enjoy his prosperity. Do not all go to the same place. I think what he sees is the inability to enjoy life and to live a thousand years with lots of wealth and children and all this is just a prolonged death. It's just a long dying if you can't find enjoyment under the sun. The end of this passage for today um, Everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet the appetite is never satisfied. What advantage have the wise over fools who gain to the poor by knowing how to conduct themselves before others? And he ends with this short poem proverb. Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Better to see what you have than to go about roving in appetite. To just go about in that way. And so this is... um, the quote on the back of the bulletin for today, um, which I wanted to share because I think it relates to how Kohelet relates to death. This is Nicholas Walterdorst writing in a book titled Lament for a Son. It's about his son who had died early in life. Um, and he wrote this book. And it's often in these lament books that I think we see some of what Kohelet is mentioning. But, but what he says is someone said to Claire, his wife, I hope you're learning to live at peace with Eric's death. Peace, shalom, salam. Shalom is the fullness of life in all dimensions. Shalom is dwelling in justice and delight with God and neighbor and oneself and in nature. Death is shalom's mortal enemy. Death is demonic. We cannot live at peace with death. When the writer of Revelation spoke of that coming day of shalom, he did not say that on that day we would live at peace with death. He said that on that day, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. I shall to to keep the wound of my son's death from healing and recognition of our living still in the old order of things. I shall try to keep it from healing and our solidarity with those who sit beside me on humanity's mourning bench. Kohelet sees as this grievous evil, as this prolonged death, is is this question of can't you make peace with it? And what Waltersdorf sees in this question when everybody's like, at some point you'll come to live at peace with the death of your son, he says, why would we live at peace with our enemy? It's that which robs peace and shalom from us. And so he keeps that space alive. He doesn't want peace to come there because it is there in recognition we find we are living in the old order of things. I shall try to keep uh, from healing in solidarity with those who sit beside me on humanity's morning bench, on the place in which the umbrella is torn open, on the place in which we find ourselves in the chaos of the world. So as we've done every week, we'll close with the frame narrator. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in the order many proverbs. The teacher searched just to find the right words. And what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the lies are like goads. They're collected saying like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of adding anything to them. Of the making of many books, there is no end, and much study wearies the whole body. Now all has been heard. Hear the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including everything hidden, every including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. God will bring meaning and truth and beauty to this, whether it is good or uh, whether it's hidden or evil, and God will bring it all into judgment. That is the, the word we get here at the end. And so let us pray. God, you have called us into this book, this odd book that we may be brought into your, um, that we may be brought into the awareness of what life is like fully under the sun. God, open our eyes Dig open our ears so that we can listen to you in worship, that we may be drawn into this mystery, and that we may receive the gift of being able to enjoy the goodness that you have for us. Cause us to cease from our endless striving and to be those whom receive the good gifts that you have for us, to receive open-handed. We ask all this in the name of the Father and the Son, in the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'll go get the song.